This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. We, we're all looking at the same map. We're all wanting to get to the same location. But we're just looking at it from a different part of the map. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to The Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name's Coach Yas, a performance coach, content creator and founder of The Coaches Network. And today's episode is going to be part of our how-to series, where we discuss a range of topics and with the help of our guests, break down some actionable how-to steps to help you reach your full potential. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Jess, and I've got a very special guest with me today. We're going to be delving into the physical corner of the of coaching world. Um, today's guest is Nick Grantham, a performance enhancement specialist with experience working in Premier League and England youth teams. How are you, Nick? I'm very well. Thank you for inviting me on to speak to you. Brilliant. Nick, not going to waste any time. You might just let us and the listeners know about your journey and how you've got to where you got to so far. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll keep it relatively brief, but um, um, I'm pre- I'm pretty old, really. I guess uh, as coaches go. Uh, so I'm 48. Um, left school at 16. Uh, went into sort of insurance and banking, which uh, I was terrible at, and then discovered through my own sport that I could I could go to university and study sports science, um, which is what I did. So I did a undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in in sports science, and then went to work for um, a company called Lillyshaw Sports in- Injury and Human Performance Centre, which was based at Lillyshaw National Sports Centre, which was home of England teams at, at that time. Um, it was a private company that basically outsourced sports science support to various governing bodies. And, and my governing body that I worked with was British Gymnastics. Uh, so I worked for there for a number of years before moving across to England Netball uh, to work as a strength and conditioning coach. And then after a number of years, went across to the newly developed English Institute of Sport where I headed up the strength and conditioning team in the West Midlands. And that was really uh, a critical part of my career, working across 20 or more sports, preparing athletes to go to major games, Olympics, Commonwealth Games, World Championships. Uh, And then in 2007, I I left the English Institute of Sport and set up um, on my own as a consultant working for a variety of organisations and governing bodies and kind of found my way into football. So worked in professional football at a variety of clubs 
from championship through to premiership level and England youth teams, which is what I'm currently doing at the moment, working uh, with a Premier League team. Brilliant. You know, so you talked there about you know having a range of experience across many sports. What would you say are some of the common trends that you've seen within, I guess, the physical aspect of things and some of the things that transfer when you recognise that actually these are real fundamentals um, Yeah, in that pathway? So I think I was, I was very lucky to work at the English Institute of Sport and what that meant was that on, it, on any one day I could see athletes from a range of sports and certainly in the strength and conditioning facility you know it wouldn't be uncommon to have athletes from five six or seven different sports all training at the same time so I think what you what you very quickly pick up is that you may have a figure skater a female rugby player a judo player um, a triple jumper but then when they actually start watching the types of physical preparation they're doing whilst there will be subtleties and, and you know, nuances that are specific to their sport, the fundamentals that support physical preparation and, and their expression athletically uh, uh, go across all of those sports. So I think what that really taught me was, and it's something that I've used with other sports that I've worked with, is this idea that your athletes really, your athletes first and foremost, that happen to express your athleticism either playing football or rugby or cricket or doing taekwondo. And, and that's the difference, really. And I think certainly in football, that wasn't the perception for, for many years. You know, it was you're a football player first and foremost, and, and that's kind of it. Whereas I think increasingly, certainly the way the game is going in, in the Premier League and at the highest levels, you know, these are athletes first and foremost um, that happen to express that athleticism by playing football, and I, and I think it becomes increasingly difficult for for players to maintain high standards if they're not physically well prepared. So I, I think that's the key for me is that every sport is unique, but actually when you drill down into it in terms of physical preparation and that physical corner, there are probably more similarities than there are differences in the way that we physically prepare our athletes. Mm. And obviously taking into consideration that obviously, like I said, every sport is different, individualised in terms of, the, I guess, the the key attributes that might be required to perform that sport, sport at the highest level. Would you say any there's any fundamental principles that each of these athletes within these different sports maybe had in common? Um, I think in terms of physical preparation, you know, strength for me as a strength and conditioning coach, I would say this, but strength and power probably underpins many of the, the other physical qualities so that is going to support the ability to be fast so in terms of our acceleration deceleration change direction so speed um, variables are going to be underpinned by by a solid strength base but equally um, if we're looking at economy of effort you know again strength will underpin that in terms of endurance capacity as well so I think one of the things that that you take away and that I think is increasingly becoming recognized within um, football, because that's the sport we're kind of primarily concerned with at the moment, is is this underpinning of strength and power that kind of will support all other aspects of of the training. Mm. And you know, just just through experiences, and I've, I've I've certainly noticed, you know, in my observations that you know some people will find it challenging to maybe collaborate the two, uh, I guess, the corners together in terms of the technical, tactical stuff as well as the physical stuff. You know, we, you know everyone within different sports will you know will have different i guess requirements in that but as you said we you know we're going to talk about football as it stands 
in terms of positions, everyone's got different requirements, different positions. Is there any particular things that you feel that, you know, from your experience that you've observed where it's in terms of isolating different movements and looking at that aspect of things in different positions that maybe coaches could start to consider within their work and maybe how about they link in? Because obviously not every coach, you know, not everyone who's going to be listening to this essentially will have access to those multidisciplinary teams as, as support staff and whatnot. Any areas that you feel that these coaches potentially could start to, I guess, delve into themselves to kind of build the, the, more of that physical work into their, I guess, their programs? Yeah, so I think, I mean, obviously you attended one of the courses where, which, which I was a tutor on. Um, and I think one of the key things that I try to get across to coaches is, and, and they, they will do, is, is like understand your your sport and understand the positional requirements and also how that relates to the team that you're working with because again we can always look at we can always look outside to other examples of best practice but that might not actually mean anything to the way that your team is specifically set up so some of the teams that I've worked with you know we've had uh, whilst whilst it's a premier league team you know the squad may be very different to the very best premier league teams you know in terms of age their physical capacity their technical uh, capabilities so whilst we will look at the best practice you actually have to make a program that's that's right for your team the way you're going to set your team up to play um, and the physical characteristics that your players bring to that so there's, there's a lot there's a lot there but as a coach you know that's where I would start and say really understand what do you want your defenders to do what pattern are they going to be playing what shape are they uh, are they setting up in you know what kind of What's the blueprint for your team? Are they going to be, um, you know, play out from the back? Are they going to be uh, a physical team that hard to break down? And then once you once you know generally what that looks like, and again this comes back to some of the work that's been done before at the FA and, and other clubs looking at their, sort of the DNA of your team and, and of your athlete, is you can then say right if we want our defenders to be physically strong and, and hard to beat in aerial challenges then you can start to unpick, right, well, what does it actually take to be able to win a header or to be able to defend a set piece? And they'll, you know, what what the football actions that you would like your players to be able to perform, uh, you know, create a list of those. And then either through your own sort of education or speaking to experts in the physical sort of corner saying, right, well, if I want my player to be able to out-jump the other player, if we can run drills on the on the pitch that looks at timing and flight of the ball, what physically underpins that? And I, you know, I'd be saying, right, okay, well, let's look at their strength levels. Let's look at how they jump. Let's look at, you know, some of their coordination, and you know, really drill down into those areas that underpin it. And and again, if if you've got players that you want to be a little bit quicker and be able to close down the space on their opposition, right? Well, okay. We can run drills all day long, but just running the drill over and over again may not be the most time efficient mm. way of improving that quality. You you may actually want to, um, again, look at some off-field conditioning uh, or some on-field work that looks at acceleration and those initial first two, three strides. So I think with all your football actions, you know, once you've established how you want your team to play, what you want your various positions to be able to do, you can then start to drill down into what are the physical qualities that underpin those footballing actions. 
Right, and you, you touched there on about you know the physical qualities and I guess the, some of those movements that might be required within certain actions. How important is it then that you know? And I'm coming back to your point about being time efficient in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, in the context of obviously having training sessions and you know certain having set times, you know, uh, uh, quite likelihood is obviously when you're working in a first team environment, there's going to be set, set time aside to be able to do the additional bits where it would be off the field or away from the main element of training, if that makes sense. How yeah. important is it then? For us to be able to maybe isolate these movements when necessary, or is it? Would you say it's more effective and time efficient to maybe think about ways in which we can maybe manage our practice or design different types of practices which incorporate these movements within? It, if that makes sense. So I think you probably want a combination of the two. Um, a, a colleague of mine, Mark Jarvis, uh, you know, said it quite nicely. You know, by all means, make it football specific, but let's not dilute it right down so that we're doing something that that just kind of just looks like physical preparation and it because it's got a ball in there so i think there are times when you know we want to isolate where we we need to do off-field conditioning um but i think more often than not particularly you know even in the first team environment you know time is tight uh during the week so i think looking at opportunities such as use of the warm-up is a is a really valuable time um where you can reinforce some of the physical qualities and technical qualities that you're looking for um, before you get to the session. I I then, you know, do believe that, you know, once you get into the technical and the tactical aspect of the the session, you know, that's going to be the priority, but there may be opportunities within that to, um, for instance, if you wanted to work on maximum velocity, you know, getting them running at top speed, you know, design the drill, uh, so that the space that you're using kind of forces the players to run at or close to maximal velocity, you know, and whether that's putting someone else to run against so there's some competition or whether it's the distances that you're covering. I think with um, some planning, you can get the technical aspect that you're looking for, but also overload some of the physical qualities that you may be um, striving for as well. And I know certainly within... Um, the setup at the FA, you know, that's something that they're very keen on doing is looking at how, what does each drill and what does each session give us physically and, and does that kind of match and achieve game pace strategies. So just on that then, yeah, you, you, am I right in thinking that you'd say that, you know, generally it'd be good to have sessions that work in a higher intensity? Um, yeah, I think, it, I think it, it, again, it depends on what the outcome of your session that you're looking for but you know certainly you want to be looking at getting close to or or at game pace for you know specific parts of, of your drills yeah right so then building on that then would you say that there needs to be a set time allotted to that in the, in the sense that how intense it is and i guess for what period of time it stays that stays as intense and do you feel that you know i you know, just talking to you how important it is to maybe I guess fluctuate between that high intensity and that low intensity work in between potentially, or whether that be, you know, is 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 it advisable to maybe work in sets of 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 games or sets of practices where maybe you work in a high intensity, almost like an interval style training? Yeah, I think you want to. You, you certainly need to have some light and shade within your sessions and within your week. So, you know, you you can't have high volume and high intensity um, really in in your session. You you might have that on odd occasions where you really want to challenge your players and put them into a bit of a hole. But I think invariably, you know, 
the focus needs to either be a high intensity or a higher volume day. Um, mm. So, you know, you can do that within your session, but also within, within the week. And, you know, if you're doing it within the session, you want to look at blocks of, of practice where, you know, to maintain the quality and the intensity that your players are working at, you, you probably do need to reduce down um, some of the duration of activities that they're going through. Right. So, you know, you kind of touch on some of the stuff that you're looking at there. I mean, I think back to some of the stuff that I've done in the past and, you know, even in terms of, you know, those sprints and maybe those long distance, uh, I guess, uh, runs, if you want to put it. Um, I look at changing maybe the shape and the size of the areas that I use. Yeah. Sometimes go with longer shapes, maybe narrower, which maybe might encourage, I guess, sprints or movements in particular directions more than others. Um would you mind just talking to that a bit in terms of how, you know, if there's any other maybe creative ways that you can think of or that you've experienced in your, uh, I guess, your your work where you've had to, I guess, be creative in, in, in I guess, implementing some of that stuff and allowing the session to cater for those things? I think um, that that's where I, I tend to have, try and have good conversations with the coaches that I'm working with because, you know, they normally have a, a far better understanding of, you know, how to set up different drills to to achieve a certain shape or, or a certain distance. But I think the things that you manipulate, you know, you can manipulate, first of all, the pitch size. You know, by changing the dimensions of that, you can make it a very small and condensed pitch, which was going to overload that acceleration, deceleration, change of direction. So that's going to be much more of a uh, an impact on sort of like your, your, your strength and your power and your muscular endurance. Um, if you open the pitch size up, then that's going to be, allow opportunities for the players to open up themselves and you might get some more high speed running and some max velocity type work in there. So you can manipulate the, the pitch size. I think also you can manipulate the number of players that are involved in, in the practice again so that there's, there's spaces for them to work through. And then you can also think about um, how many people you have as floaters, people that are feeding the ball, people that are resting. Um, and allowing opportunities for, for players to work very hard, but then maybe come out onto the edge of the drill and either be feeding the ball or, or taking um, some active recovery. So I think, you know, pitch size is an obvious one, the number of players involved in the practice, and then ways in which you can have players filter in and out of, of, of practice are all ways that you can manipulate the intensity and the volumes that players are, are experiencing during the session. Definitely, you know, just talking there, you know, it'd be interesting now, you know, maybe, you see, you know, from from my perspective as a coach, I mean, when I when I think about the physical corner, right, you know, I remember when I first started out, it was much more, it was very basic, or, you know, didn't really think about how much of an impact it really had on the sessions, and, you know, I think naively, you'd just expect, oh, well, here's the session, players just get on with it, um, not really paying too much attention, and appreciate appreciation for how much, I guess, intensity there is within the sessions what kind of load it's actually putting on the players and I think it's that old school mentality of just get on with it sort of thing and I think mm-hmm. as time goes on you know I've, I've certainly developed um, to the point where I've had a, a deeper understanding of the physical components and how much of it it can attribute to the actual overall a- outcome of the session it would just be interesting to get from your your perspective as someone who's maybe who's actually worked in the physical uh, I guess corner as almost a specialist for a number of years now how important and what you define as the working in the physical corner so well i, I guess um for for everything that 
you want your players to be able to do. You know, there are underpinning physical qualities that will support that performance on the pitch. And and I guess that, for, in my mind, that's that's your physical corner. So I think you would be looking at what are your fundamental and underpinning physical qualities, be that strength, speed, uh, endurance, uh, flexibility, mobility. You know, so that, those might be four aspects. Those aspects, you can then subdivide those down further. So in terms of strength, we could be focusing on power-to-weight ratio. We could be focusing on explosive strength, reactive strength. We could then look at endurance and say, well, we want repeated sprint ability. We want um, or more aerobic capacity. And then if we look at speed, you know, is the player able to accelerate or are they very good at accelerating, but they can't put the brakes on and decelerate and then change direction? Or um, are they good at that, but they haven't really got the top top end max velocity? So I think, you know, just probably just describing that all of a sudden opens up this world that is like, well, actually, it's quite, there's a lot going on that we can consider uh, in terms of physical preparation, that physical corner that supports performance out on the pitch. And I think, as we said before, we can either do that away from the field um, and sometimes that will be optimal. But more often than not, I think what's useful and I think where it's worked better with coaches is when there's a connection between what's happening on the grass and what's then happens in a in a drill. So almost that whole part, whole t- delivery where you may be running a drill and then pull out from that drill a certain aspect that we overload physically on the pitch and then go back to the whole drill again. So, um, yeah, the physical corner, there's a, there's a lot going on in there. Um, there's a lot for coaches to understand. But then equally for us as strength and conditioning coaches and physical preparation coaches, we also have to understand what the coaches are looking for technically and tactically um, as well. And, you know, just to talk there about the different aspects and, you know, the, the different fundamental and physical qualities there, just... <laughs> I want to take you back a few minutes. You talked there in the warm up. You can maybe utilize the warm ups in a different way, and maybe you know I'm assuming the same would go for you within the cool downs, uh, post game and whatnot. Would you mind just talking to that a little bit in terms of warm ups and what kind of things we could do to adapt our warm ups, I guess, to better prepare the players ahead of that? And would you say that that is in line with maybe a, a, a element of prehab? Yeah, I, um, so you can call it, it depends on what club or what sport you work yeah. with. It gets called all different things, prehab or activation. I mean, basically, it's it's all it's all a warm up. It's all preparation. So what you're looking for is to physically prepare the player for for what they get then going to be asked to do in the session. So what we call it that you know that kind of changes. You know, before the call, we talked about what's in and what's out. You know, each year it's going to be called a different thing. But essentially, fundamentally, what you're trying to do, and this is what you need to remember, is you need to make sure that your players are ready to um, operate and, and take part in the drills that that you're prescribing. So, again, your drill, your your training sessions will probably have a theme, should have a theme, you know, what you want to be achieving as a coach. And myself, working in the physical corner, if I'm leading the warm-up aspect, I would like to know what you're trying to achieve in those drills, what the first drill is going to be, and then during that warm-up, make sure that I have exercises and and drills in there that prepare them to be able to go straight in. So, you know, if we're going to be doing linear 
if we if we're going to be working in a, in a big pitch for that first drill where players are going to open up, I'm going to make sure that you know we've got elements of extended running taking place that we've done some work to condition the hamstrings before they go in mm. and, and and sprint. You know, so again, it, it's you know warm ups aren't just a ten minute filler. You know, they're a really important component of the overall session. Mm. And we, can, and we can get a lot of work in there that preps the player. Um, and if you know, if, if we're talking about you know, is it prehab, rehab, injury produ- reduction? You know, just it's training. And if you train well, then you should be more robust as an athlete. Definitely, you know, just what you're touching on there, it just kind of just sparks some, I guess, some thoughts and memories that I've, I've you know, observations that I've had in terms of that warm up being quite generic. And so. It's fair to say then, based on what you're saying there, then that really no two warm-ups should ever be the same unless the sessions are going to be the same in terms of practices <laughs> utilised, essentially. Isn't that correct? Depends um, Depends whether you're working at a club and doing warm-ups every single day. It gets quite difficult to um, add, add the variety in every day. But yeah, I think what you should certainly have, and I know having worked at clubs and, and in tournament situations, you'd be looking at you know basing your warm up around the outcomes that they're trying to get from the physical session. Mm. So, you know, and, and each day within a week would typically have themes, you know, so you might have a more intensive day. So I know that my warm up needs to prep the lads for um, more higher intensities, more at sales, D cells, change of direction. You know, you may have a more extensive day where that's not, as important and you just need to go through a more, a more general sort of pulse raiser. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the days of just um, doing the same warm up every single day, it should be gone, you know, and, and equally your pre-match warm up, my pre-match warm up looks very different to um, a, a train warm up. You know, there's certain things, especially when you're integrating in with the coaches, and, and kind of flip-flopping between a, a technical drill and then coming back to a physical drill, which is very much how, certainly when I've worked uh, with the international age group players, that's that's what we'd do. We'd, we'd work in combination pre-match. So, yeah, I think warm-up needs a lot of consideration. And just, you know, you touched there on obviously the match day warm-ups and whatnot. Would you say that the match day warm-ups become a bit more generic and then have individualised elements in there where you might pull certain players out based on their individual needs and, I guess, their... Uh, potential requirements and expectations within that game. So yeah, so again, I think what we look for is, you know, they they got to be ready to go onto the get onto the pitch and get, start going at 100 miles an hour from from the whistle. So, you know, there's probably going to be shorter, sharper, more intense. Um, there's there's more um, technical work taking place with the coaches, but then what I try and do is always allow opportunities for for players to do some of their own individual work, you know, that that will get them focused and and ready for for the match. So yes, you know that that's what you'd be looking for a, a, a fairly standardised warm up for for match day, but with the opportunities for players to to perform some of their own individual work. Right, and you know, certainly from my experience, I'm you know, working with goalkeepers and outfield players, and I, I just think back to the times when I've worked with goalkeepers in particular, and my warm-ups used to be, on the whole, maybe quite generic uh, yeah. in terms of what we'd cover, but I'd always give them that few moments each to maybe add a little bit of maybe what they wanted to do. It And, you know, just touching on what you said there, would you would you 
from my perspective, it's always about, you know, I want the player to be as comfortable as possible going into that game. So having their own element, you know, and I guess getting allowing them to take some ownership and, uh, around that was a key thing for me. Would you say that? Yeah, I think that that's probably what you're maybe touching on there in terms of allowing them to have that bit and more. Yes, we're working in the physical corner here, but now we're actually almost, almost now trying to blend and touch on the psych side of things. Oh, 100%. You know, look, I'm, I remember working when I worked it with England netball players um, and one of the players that I worked with, you know, as part at that point in time, like static stretching was was a massive no-no and it was all, everything had to be dynamic and that was the way we were going and, and I was trying to say to his play, look, we know we're not doing any static stretching because of this this theory and that theory and you know, in conversation with her, she's like, Nick, if I don't do this static hamstring stretch, I just don't feel like I'm, I'm ready to take to the court. And I think that's when having dialogue with coaching athletes is really important because whilst the science may say 100%, you know, don't do a static stretch before you go and do a dynamic activity, um, you have to also understand that there are certain things, certain rituals that players need to go through. And again, working in other sports, I've, I've worked in action sports, downhill mountain biking. And, and we used to talk about, is it a warm, is it a pre, pre-race routine or a pre-race ritual? And I think it's a blending of the two. And that's the same with pre-match routines. There'll be a certain amount of pre-match routine, but you also have to allow the individual ritual that will allow them to be best placed to, to perform maximally. And sometimes that will go against, um, what you feel is scientifically proven or best practice, but we shouldn't undervalue what impact that has on, on a player's preparation psychologically and, and mentally and emotionally. So, you know, you just gave an example there about the England or the netball player there. Have you any mm-hmm. other examples where maybe a player has been a bit resistant to maybe some of the methods and I guess uh, types of practices that you maybe want to in- encourage or implement with them? In, in those in those contexts and you know the context is sorry, and then how have that how has that presented itself and you know what how have you kind of overcome and I guess maybe brought them to your line of thinking or even brought yourself to their line because you touched there about you know as coaches it's generally we, you know we do we do fall into I guess biases of the science as he put it and what we know to be proven and best practice but in actual fact there's a lot of things as you touched on there as well that sometimes they might not be considered best practice, but they might be best best uh, place for that individual player because of, I guess, the meaning it has to them. And for some people, like I'll give you an example, of, you know, working with a goalkeeper before, no matter what happened, he'd always wanted to do, he, he, for some reason, just five. He never wanted to do more or less. He wanted to just do five goal kicks. Yeah. Um, in my head, it, it never made quite sense, but I think at the time, I was just like, okay, well, if this is what the player is asking for, there's got to be an underlying reason, even if they can't quite, I guess, articulate or, or vocalise that to, to me. It means something to them. Yeah. Well, so look, I think increasingly over the last sort of five to ten years, I, I've, I think I've developed as a coach and I'm, and I'm much more understanding and much more in tune and accepting of what the athlete or what the player um feels is important and that's not that's not saying that you're an absolute pushover but there's kind of there has historically been and I think I've probably been guilty of it of, of this kind of arrogance of well I've, I've done a degree and a postgraduate therefore I know what's best for you 
and you kind of forget that the, that athlete has been doing what they've been doing for the last 10, 15, 20 years. You know, so um, whilst I may think that a, a, a 32-year-old um, defender would benefit from uh, improving some strength qualities in the gym, you know, I have to understand that they've been doing pretty well for themselves over the last 20 years. So let's try and understand and have some dialogue and some conversation about how we're going to get there and why it's important. And I think, you know, it. I, I'd probably try and take more of a subtle approach. And my, again, a colleague who mentioned already, Mark Jarvis, talked about positive pollution. You know, I think there are some things that if, you know, if it's almost like a bargaining chip, look, you can, like you said, with your goalkeeper, you can do your five goal kicks, but what I'd also like you to do as a trade-off is this drill. You know, so if we do this drill, you can keep your, your five goal kicks in there. And it's that positive pollution that other goal kicks going to detract significantly from what, what you're doing physically in terms of the preparation. No. Well, let's keep it in. You know, and I've seen that a lot in the physical corner and, and certainly on the off-field conditioning, which hasn't always been readily accepted in, in football where you've come up against a lot of resistance about coming into the gym and, and training. Um, and, and just for me, it's finding ways of em- embracing what the players want to do in the gym. You know, so typically, you know, you get to around about March, April, when everyone starts thinking about going on holiday and, and getting ready for the beach. Mm-hmm. And I think in the past, I would have been dead against a lot of what I saw in there. But actually, if that's the first time a player's come into the gym, why don't I embrace that? Why don't I try and figure out why they're coming in and what they're trying to achieve and allow a little bit of positive pollution, but then shape their program to, to give, you know, 60% of what I want, 40% of what they want. You know, it's, uh, I think it can be quite arrogant when you think it's like, it's my way or the highway mm. type approach. You know, just touching on, you you talked there about, you know, that 60, 40 kind of balance. How, how, you know, well, how, do you, how do you challenge that in, you know, in presenting? I mean, have you had any situations where you've maybe had to look at something that the goalkeeper's doing and actually talk them around to the fact that maybe what they're doing might not be that beneficial? And um, have you had any situations where maybe that goalkeeper's maybe come to your thought, your line of thinking in that respect and kind of left that element of their routine or ritual behind? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah I, can, I can certainly think of... I can certainly think of players that have wanted to do... Um, certain conditioning drills off field that I that I may have looked at and felt either again cost benefit you know is the the cost of doing that exercise the risk of doing that exercise outweighing the potential physical benefit and you know try and explain that to the player and then explain some alternative options that would achieve the same or, or similar result um, and. You know, those conversations aren't usually resolved immediately. You know, they're probably ongoing and you need to give people a little bit of time to think about, you know, what I'm saying and what they're saying. Um, and, and equally, you know, it's important for me to listen, to listen to what that player had to say as to why they thought that drill was important, what they felt that that gave them physically. And, you know, I better have a good reason for why I, I would want to adjust it mm. to make it maybe a safer option. So I think you come up against that every day in all positions um, and I'm sure coaches will come up against that um, out on the pitch as well um, so yeah I, I think it's just being 
open-minded enough to have a conversation with the player as to what you want them to do and how to do it. Definitely. I think just, you know, as you touched on again, it resonates with some, some of the things I've done in the past. And I think that element of almost uh, vulnerability to an extent, because you're allowing the player to take some ownership and um, I guess some lead on what they're actually doing. But I think it's important to kind of highlight that, you know, it's not just because it's almost athlete-centred, doesn't always have to be uh, coach-led. Um, and vice versa it doesn't always have to be athlete led, but I think that that blend and you know you, you refer there to about sixty forty kind of percentage there around what that balance could look like as an average. Now I'm just intrigued. You know you, t- you touched on there before about some of the uh, principles and fundamentals of obviously that people might need to consider when working in the physical corner in particular. Would you mind just delving a bit deeper into into what that is? Um, go on. Explain a bit more what you're after. So yeah. you, you you know you you touched there about you know about some of the things that uh, the physical qualities that we might need to look at. Would you mind just maybe yeah, delving yeah. into it around some of the strategies and principles that we could you know that maybe coaches could take and apply within their sessions that they can start to consider. You touched a bit around you know the, the constraints of the pitch and the pitch size dimensions yeah. and whatnot. Is there any other areas that you might that, that might you feel that might benefit coaches start considering? Yeah, so I think I, I, I would encourage them to, and I think I talked about this on the goalkeeping course, you know, most of the coaches haven't, most coaches haven't got access to sophisticated uh, equipment to measure GPS and, and what have you. But I think, you know, something that all coaches can do is have a notebook and do some very simple notational analysis of their drills and their sessions and, and the matches. And, you know, even if it's something as simple as number of dives left, number of dives right, number of times they've come out, of the box you know if that if we're talking goalkeepers or for for any position you know what are the what are the key football actions that you want them to achieve and how many times do they do that within a session uh, within a drill and within within a game and then from that you can then start to unpick well, what are the physical qualities that we think support that you know so it may be that you know if you want your player to be faster well what type of fast are you, are you trying to develop is it that initial acceleration over two to three steps right well in which case we know that strength could be helpful so have they got an off-field conditioning program for their lower body um have have we got a way of measuring uh, jump height or broad jump so a, a jump laterally that that would give us a good indication of what the lower body strength and power is um and then you know adding in drills to condition those elements, you know. So I think it's it's going back to unpicking, start off with the football action and then look at the physical qualities that, that underpin that that football action. Definitely. I think you just touched on the edge of looking at the physical qualities and touch on that action itself. Would you mind just, you know, I know certainly from my work that when I design practice, I really look really specifically about types of movements players are making and also, you know, down to every aspect of it so for instance much much more if I take as an example we'll talk about coaching a pass for instance you know simple techniques where people talk about maybe having your foot alongside the ball and stuff like that would you mind you know maybe delving into how much paying attention to that those minor details within the physical movements and interact and I guess actions that we maybe need to pay attention to when we're actually now thinking about performing you know I guess preparing and implementing some of these practices to replicate those actions within our sessions because quite often you know you, I think you gave an example earlier Matt, 
we might need to get more players jumping up and attacking corners, attacking headers, with, uh, attacking corners with headers, as an example, and maybe not looking at the full action itself and actually what makes that action as best as it could be, if that makes sense, in terms of the technique, in terms of the, you know, the takeoff foot. What, uh, what you know, maybe what, how much loading needs to go into the quad when they're leaving off that foot, or whatever that makes sense. How much, yeah. of that, how much of that attention should be required? You know, I guess paid. So I think um, you know, this is often one of the arguments that you get from players and coaches is that, well, just because he can jump high in the gym, he never wins a header. So then, okay, well that tells me that tells me something in itself. You know, they've probably got the underpinning physical qualities, but what what we're saying is maybe they they haven't got the ability to read the flight of the ball or they um, aren't positioned properly. So I, so I think, you know, again, you unpick which aspect of it that, that you need to work on. But certainly, you know, if we're trying to develop acceleration or maximum velocity or jump height, you know, there will be some technical models that your coaches and and again these are readily readily available and you you can find these in a variety of resources but you know if I want to improve acceleration I want the players to be able to hit certain shapes and positions if I want to improve vertical jump I'm going to teach them how to jump um, in in, you know it might be in a gym environment or it might be out on the pitch but it would be a very technical way of jumping now that might look different to how they would then jump out on the pitch. So you wouldn't just do that exclusively. You know, you would do some of the more specific work and then blend that into the football action and the, the football practice. And you can't guarantee there's going to be a transfer across. But what I always try and explain to coaches across all sports is look, what we're trying to do is give you the uh, improved raw materials. We're trying to, you know, take player version one and give you player version 1.2. You know, and if we can improve their physical qualities, can you then enhance that and and implement that into your football specific training? Definitely, you know, just just touching on that then to kind of looking at enhancing those aspects. I want to take you back to something that you touched on earlier and looking at maybe the style of plays and, and I guess the way a team wants to set up in particular. You know, would you mind just maybe going through some steps if you have any? Um, where you've maybe had to collaborate with a coach and actually breaking those steps down because now a large part of obviously we'll come back to the planning of the sessions in terms of what kind of movements we're expecting or what kind of movements we're hoping to kind of recreate within the session um, over what kind of you know distances and whatnot. And for me, you know, whenever I'm planning my sessions, I'm always looking at it from the from the from the end backwards rather than right. This is the topic. I want to work and build sessions and build up to the final phase. I always think, right, it's best to maybe start at the end and work back in terms of that so then I can maybe start to pick out and isolate certain moments of the game or instances within that where I'm asked to maybe, again, pay attention to those finer details around, is it just a simple standing jump? Is it like, you know, a jump where it requires the player to, because of the you know where the ball is positioned and the flight of the ball and whatever that may be, that actually the starting position for that might be slightly different. So, you know, we can take goalkeepers as an, as an example when we're looking at, right, how does a goalkeeper maybe want to take off to maybe deal with a cross? Yeah. Um, we obviously need to maybe recreate a way in which that, that dynamic is obviously realistic and game-related. Um, but then, ha- you know, it'll be interesting to maybe get your views and addressing how important it is to understand the individual, com- I guess, capabilities of each player when designing those sessions and allowing, 
I guess, flexibility in the framework of the practice to, for that to occur, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think yeah, I think what we've got to think about is collective individualization almost. And that's something we do in the off-field conditioning, but also, you know, you take that through onto the, onto the pitch. I think it'd be very difficult to p- develop a practice or a training session that takes into account the individual requirements for every single player on the pitch. I think that's just unrealistic. But you've got this collective individualization where, you know, you can, you can design drills that tick the majority of boxes for each player that you've got out there. And then it might be that you have a conditioning zone where you might then take some players away and work on something specific. So, let, again, you know, keepers, it might be that the goalkeeping coaches recognise that actually when they go to ground, coming back up off their left-hand side, they're not as, they're not as quick to get back to their set position. So, you know, it's beyond the scope of practice to have a completely individualised drill for that player. But what you could do is, you know, if you've got three keepers working, you know, whilst whilst he's sat out to the side um, waiting to go back in, you know, it may be that you overload them and give them some specific drills to work on getting up from the ground in, into their set position. So I think it's just, again, looking at your positions and understanding how you set your drills up and opportunity either within the session or immediately after where you say right okay we've finished now I want you to come across and again this is something that we'd have at the age groups is individual practice so at the end of each session there would be an opportunity for coaches to work with small groups or or individual players on some individual work-ons and that might you know that might be a technical work-on like a, a a finishing drill or it could be a physical component that you work on either before or after the training session and just on that how important is it that that may be an isolated physical practice as, as opposed to something with a ball a ball involved in, in that respect so i think um you know you, you've got to work out what what it is you're trying to develop and everyone's going to want to have a ball involved because that that's you know players started to play football because they like playing football, not because they like going to the gym or doing squats or, or doing lunges out on a pitch. But I think there's also time to recognise that, you know, maybe having a ball or running a drill may actually detract from the intensity or the quality of movements that you're looking for. So if you're trying to teach a player uh, a, a fundamental movement um, to improve uh, an underpinning physical quality, a, a strength quality, you know, it may actually be optimal to give them a very kind of fixed drill that doesn't have a ball involved that they work on and then feed them back into the session where they can take that practice that they've just been learning into a, a, a football scenario. I think that's, that's often the best way is, is making sure that they've got a link between the two, what they're doing in isolation and then putting it back into practice. Mm. And I think, I think you know, again, just some of the things that I'm, I'm thinking back on my, my journey and some of the stuff that I've done in, with players in particular, and I always think it's best to have that ball involved because, like you said, they, that's what they're there for. They, you know, they're, they're, they're there because they enjoy playing with the ball, essentially. And I think, would you agree? You know, what are your thoughts on the fact that if that's not there, it, it can almost be demotivating at times. You know, I'm sure there's other work that you've done with players, maybe coming back from injuries and stuff like that at times, where that can be frustrating if the ball's not involved. Um, what are your thoughts on 
actually just having isolated practices completed, do you ever find that 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 that, that makes things even more challenging in terms of getting the players oh. motivated and in, in, in actually participating in the practices you've designed for them? Or do you still find that actually through some conversation that you have to kind of talk them around to it? Yeah, I think like those. I remember on on the goalkeeping courses, you know, some of the more challenging conversations I had with with coaches was around the fact that we were suggesting there were specific times where you might want to take the ball out of the equation and just work on an isolated movement to to overload it and to improve that physical quality. And I think sometimes that is a challenge. Um, again, I think it's for, for us as practitioners and the coaches to understand the benefit of, of what you're trying to do. And, it, you know, you certainly don't want extended periods of time where they're doing drill after drill after drill that kind of bears no real relation to what they're doing out on the pitch. I think it's important that, you know, whatever drills you put in place, you try and relate that as closely to the, the footballing context and action as, as possible. And I think if the players can see that link, then you're far more likely to get them engaged in what they're doing. So that that's often why, you know, it's good to stand next to the coach and certainly some of the warm-ups that I've done with, with goalkeeping coaches is being, you know, they do the goalkeeping specific action and then they come to me and I take a component of that action and drill that and then they go back into another goalkeeping drill. And I think that way it helps make the links between the physical corner and the technical coaching corner that you're looking for. And just, you know, just kind of obviously, you, know, you touched there about working with goalkeeping coaches and obviously not, you know, your experience working out for them. Would you mind just from, I guess, from a, a physical uh, perspective, talk to how important and what kind of conversations maybe the coaches should be having with the multidisciplinary teams, in, you know, in particular with the physical corner staff, and how much emphasis that sh- should be placed on it? Because certainly for myself, about, you know, a few years ago, I think I had my biggest... I would say my biggest learning curve, or my, you know, however you wish to view it, my, you know, progression and development in my coaching was when I actually started to look at everyone as individual specialists and saying, right, well, we've got a physical specialist here, we've got a psych specialist here, we've got all these other, but how often are we actually collaborating and talking with one another and actually doing it meaningfully in a way where we're really trying to pull the best out of each other's, I guess, knowledge and skill sets to design a better session for the players? And I thought certainly even in the academies, you know, my my observations are that I maybe not enough coaches are tapping into those specialists and maybe not enough for the specialists and maybe being a bit more, I guess, forthcoming with their ideas. And, you know, it might be from, I don't know, for various reasons, it could be you don't want to step on anyone's toes, but essentially if we're all there for the, you know, that aspect of athlete and player development, would you mind just, you know, talking to what that conversation might look like from your perspective? Um, Usually, the best conversations happen informally, over over a beer or over a coffee, um, or you know, I just I would encourage the coach to spend time in in the off field to spend time with the guys in the gym and and see what they're actually doing and observe the sessions. And equally, I think the the guys in in the gym need to get out onto the pitch and see what the coaches are doing and putting in place. So I think it's just about living in each other's world and being comfortable, kind of being comfortable, being uncomfortable, I guess, you know, recognising that actually I'm stepping outside of my my normal area of expertise um, and 
being a little bit vulnerable, I guess. But um, I think the best conversations are just when you, you sit down with the coaches and go, right, you know, what, what do you need to happen in this drill? Or how do you want us to play? How do you want us to set up? What is it we're looking for? What's this player lacking? You know, how do you, how can I incorporate that off the field? Would you rather it be done on field during the session? You know, and and sometimes it's it's giving the coaches ideas for drills and saying, look, you know, actually, if you, if you ran the drill this way, um, you know, actually, I'm going to get what I need out of it physically, so I don't need to do an extended warm up or I don't need to do extra running work because it's going to take place in your session. Mm. Um, so I think it's just uh, there's probably been a lot of um, uh, uh, probably a lack of trust over the years between the different disciplines and football's a very competitive, you know, professional sports are very competitive uh, area and everyone's often looking one eye over their, their, their shoulder. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I, I think increasingly if you can open up some good dialogue between the coaches, everyone wants the same thing. They all want the players to be the best and for the team to win at the weekend, you know, we just have maybe a slightly different viewpoint. And, and, and a different language. And, you know, again, one of my colleagues, Darren Roberts, who works in action sports, talks about this idea about we, we're all looking at the same map. We're all wanting to get to the same location, but we're just looking at it from a different part of the map. You know, so we're, you know, we're all, we've all got the same end goal that we want to achieve with the player. We just have slightly different viewpoints. And I think it's important for each of us to understand the other's viewpoint and how we can help them achieve that that end goal i think that's really important you know you touched there a, a few seconds ago about that element of there being a history of not enough trust in one another do you think it's down to trust do you think it's more down to the aspect of what you touched on before that around being uncomfortable so i think it's probably i think it's probably a cup two two of things i think if you if you trust someone then you're quite happy to be vulnerable in front of them so I think they're I think they're interlinked, you know. So if if I trust the coaches aren't going to make me feel stupid or or, or look stupid out on the pitch mm-hmm. if I if I get something wrong, then I'm going to be far more comfortable coming out onto the pitch and sharing my ideas and and thoughts. And equally, you know that 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 goes both ways. You know, if, if I've got a coach coming in to my my environment and want to spend time in my environment, making sure that they feel comfortable in there, that I'm not going to belittle them um, knowingly or unknowingly. Um, so I think I think they're probably interlinked, if, if I'm honest. Um, but I, I I do think over the years, certainly when sports science came into professional football, you know it was very much, you know we know what we're doing. We're going to tell you how to revolutionise what you're doing as a coach. And probably coaches almost felt maybe like second class citizens at time. Um, whereas really what we're there to do, in, in terms of all the support staff, is exactly that support the players and the coaches in, in delivering what they need out on the pitch. And I think, um, you know, I think relationships are getting much, much better than they ever have been, but it does boil down to trust. It'd just be interested to know your thoughts, obviously, in the working game for a little while now, or various different sports in particular, but within football in particular, obviously, I think there's always been this, this from my experience anyway, I've, I've observed there's probably much more egos involved in football than there is in other sports. Um, everyone seems to think they know they know the right answers and they know what to do. Do you find at all that there's been a difference or maybe some resistance with coaches who have been in the game for longer than some of the, maybe the newer generation of coaches that you've come across? 
So, so first off, like there's egos in every sport. Trust me, I've worked in 36 different sports. Um, and if you are a top level performer, be that top level coach or athlete, you have got an ego. Okay. And that goes from both sides. That, that's even the same as the support staff. Support staff have got egos too. Um, so, yeah, I think you're dealing with big personalities. You're dealing with big egos. Um, and again, I think people like to paint the picture that, that one sport is better than another. And, you know, football has problems compared to other sports. But to be honest, you know, I can think of coaches and athletes across all the sports I've worked with that uh, have shared similar traits and um, big egos and not being open to change. Um, I, I don't think it's a football problem. I think, you know, it just gets talked about more because football is such a popular sport in the UK and, and people get paid um, significant sums of money. But I can think of working in basketball and there being big egos involved in, in coaching setups. And I can think of other sports. I can think of working in archery where you're really having to challenge a coach's long-held beliefs um, because they created Olympic champions and, you know, you're trying to persuade them that maybe what worked in in their previous country might not work with the athletes that we've got here. So um, I don't think it's a football problem. I think it's um, it's just dealing with people. Mm. Well, look, Nick, just, as we you know, come to a close, I was wondering if you know maybe there was any other particular areas that you felt that coaches should really you know think about considering within the work, and especially those who maybe aren't. Privilege or benefit uh, benefiting from access to you know multidisciplinary support staff around some of the things that potentially they could be doing to implement some of this stuff into their own work. I think um, I, I think it's just you know understanding the. Uh, I think what I would do go back to what we said before is is that kind of notational analysis. Like, do you actually understand um, the 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 drills that you're putting on? what they're going to give you in terms of output, um, be that number of number of sprints, num- you know, whatever metric it is. But, you know, we should be able to have a good idea of, you know, at the end of the session, what the output has been. And then from that, you know, try and then think, okay, well, if he's, if he's gone to his right 30 times, you know, what does that do in terms of his, what what sort of physical quality do do I need? You know, and I think it's probably going back and looking at some, getting some core texts or, or core resources that look at um, physical preparation and fitness, and and kind of becoming a bit of a, a student of that and seeing how you can blend it into your your programs. Definitely, and I think you know, just touching on that, thinking about some of those aspects and breaking down I think at the point that you touched on earlier about maybe taking a notepad and maybe making some of the notes around the types of movements how, how often these movements occur in what period of time and I think that's key and you know, I think you touched on another example earlier with a goalkeeper that maybe wasn't as strong coming up off on his left side off you know and getting back into that set position as he was on the right and you know I think that's a very good example of some of the isolated things that you maybe can start to focus on as coaches in particular and I think if we can start to look at what the action or that moment of the the game, shall we say, actually requires from the players and actually dissect the individual aspects of those movements that we can start to maybe think about how to implement more that more of that within our sessions and what kind of uh, imbalances and, I guess, uh, deficiencies you may pick up on 
um, that need to be further developed. Um, there you have it, guys. You know, it's been another fantastic conversation today for me. Um, joined by performance enhancement specialist Nick Grantham, um, Premier League experience uh, and champions and championship first team experience. Nick, I'll just start, you know, just as we start to you know tail off now, I'm just wondering if there's anywhere where the listeners could potentially get in touch with you if they had any questions for you. Yeah, um, they can uh, reach. Well, Twitter is Coach Nick G. Um, Instagram, I oh, I've just changed my name, Nick Grantham underscore coach I think it is um, I've just changed that recently or I've got a website which is nickgrantham.com so I think all, all three of those places and then they, there's various email opportunities um, and if people want to get in touch with me I'm more than happy to, to respond back to them Brilliant and you've also you know a few years back you released a, a book didn't you? I've got a couple of books out. Yeah, which one are you? Which one are you? I was thinking thought... about the strength and conditioning viable. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that that there's that book. That's that's out. Um, 2015. Um, and I think what you know that book was written to really for the end user. Um, so I've tried to take some of the the science and put that into a, a user friendly um, language and examples, and you know go through kind of it's kind of my strength and conditioning philosophy i guess that sounds quite grand but it's, it's how i would prepare athletes um and there's lots of good takeaway information in there so that, that's probably quite a nice starting point for some of your, your listeners to have a look at brilliant and i'm sure there's gonna be plenty of strategies and tips within the book that they can kind of start to think about implementing oh, absolutely. Like straight away um, yeah absolutely. well nick i just want to say thank you again for your time this evening um, been a very you know very insightful conversation for me you know certainly made me think about some of the past experience I've had and maybe what I could be doing differently already around some of the aspects of that um, and hopefully for the listeners as well maybe they can break down and start to think about some of the key movements and qualities that are required within their their you know their teams and their players based on I guess what their end outcome is in terms of the style of play and the type of players they want to develop in their environments um, but thank you again for your for your time Nick. No problem at all. Thanks for inviting me on to speak. Well, there you have it, guys. You've been listening to another edition of the Coaches Network How-To Series, where we discuss a range of topics and with the help of our guests, break down some actionable how-to steps for you to reach your full potential. Now, I've got no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again, guys. You know, your support is massively appreciated. So thanks again for everyone that's been tuning in and please do get in touch with us and today's guest to let us know where you're listening from, to share your thoughts, your views and your key takeaways from today's show. Along with any suggestions for guests you'd like to see on the show and any topics you'd like to hear discussed, ultimately, guys, the show is about you guys. So let us know what you're interested in, who you're interested in listening from, so get us and get in touch. And on that note, guys, you can get in touch on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. But please do not forget to use the hashtag the Coaches Network. That was the hashtag the Coaches Network. We need as much support we can get to keep this great content coming out to you. Now, lastly, guys, I just want to say keep an eye out for our socials on the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with our panel. Until next time, guys, take care and have a great day. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.